0: In America ever face the consequences of a foreign policy that is based so much on violence? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are Keeping Democracy Alive. What's going on? He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely.
1: Call a code. Get
0: an back from the nurse's station. Heart's still working, means the NASA's is still firing. We just need
1: to get a message through. Prosperity for the few. The rights of U.S. corporations to Direct from the land of Central America and exploit the people of Central America. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. People don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man.
0: After 20 years, the war in Afghanistan is finally over. Among the questions that Messi and raises is... Who is more damaged by our post-9-11 wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, them or us? As was obvious from the first day of our invasion, no matter how righteously angry we were at the attack on our civilians, victory for the United States was never even possible. The attack of 9-11 was obviously violence, great, horrible violence. But, so it's no surprise... Many of us were out for revenge, and violence, of course, begat violence. And who is the better for it? Anybody? We all know about a bit about what the war did to Afghanistan, but what did it do to us? The fact that General Mark Milley insisted we should have still kept a few thousand troops there is quite a statement that we don't get it. On this show, our returning guest is Kelly Denton-Borhaug, who has long been investigating how religion and violence collide in American war culture. She teaches in the Global Religions Department at Moravian University in Pennsylvania. She's the author of two books, U.S. War Culture, Sacrifice and Salvation, and more recently, And Then Your Soul is Gone, Moral Injury and U.S. War Culture, which she and I discussed last time she was on the show. The title of her latest piece on Tom Dispatch is A Parable of, parentheses, All-American Violence, Accountability and the War on Terror. Accountability. Poof, what a concept. As she says, in response to that one day of terrible violence in our own land, mm-hmm. perpetual conflict and perpetual violence became the American way of life in the world and the consequences at home and abroad couldn't have been uglier. End of her quote. With 2020 hindsight, one has to wonder if our impulsive reaction to the 9 11 attack was the best and only option. Thanks for being with us, Kelly Borhaug.
1: Thanks so much for having me back.
0: You write the heart wrenching last days of that war amounted to a cautionary tale about the nature of violence and the difficulty Americans have. Honestly facing their own version of it, end of your quote. There's a lot in there. Please explain in what ways it is a cautionary tale.
1: well, as 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 all of those events were coalescing, um, I couldn't help but but think that really the the image of of the the parable just came so strongly to mind for me. It was as though this was such a compact and straightforward and simple story that was loaded with incredibly important, deep, moral, as well as spiritual truth. And and simultaneously, it seemed as if it was so difficult for for most Americans, and certainly our leaders, (laughs) um, to really pay attention to that. To, to think more deeply about um, the impact of, the shaping impact that violence has had on, on all of us. Uh, and, and, and for that reason, um, when I wrote that piece, um, I started with that image of, of, of the parable and, and the, as, as, a, as a kind of cautionary tale, um, just a, a, simple, a simple story that really begs a much deeper attending and um, and, and sort of investigation or or, or moral attention.
0: Well, t- tell us about that that parable. We haven't uh, gotten to that yet. You, you, what what is the parable that uh, uh, from from Jesus of Nazareth? I believe. Uh, what what was he saying? That relates well.
1: um, I'm a I'm a religious studies scholar, and so um, uh, and I and I and I focus on Christianity. So, really, my whole life I've been hearing the 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 readings of of many. Jesus of Nazareth told many parables. This was one of his primary forms of teaching, right? So, there are many parables um, in the New Testament, and they all they all tend to take this certain shape of a very simple story. Um, and one of the characteristics <laughs> of this form of teaching um, that, is, um, that is narrated by all of the gospel writers is that so often the people listening to the parables mistake their meaning. They, they don't understand what's going on. Um, they're, they're confused by it. And, um, or, or they simply don't pay attention to it. Or they don't really want to pay yeah. attention to the truth. Really? And and for that reason, it just seemed to me to be such a, a powerful image to bring to this coalescing of these incredibly important events. I mean, the the twentieth anniversary right. of um of of nine eleven, um, the end of, of twenty years war in Afghanistan, um, and um, and then the the devastating last days. Of that war, with respect to the suicide bombing yeah. place in at the Kabul airport, and the, the the military response on the part of the U.S. to to use um, to to use a drone to uh, to fire a missile that resulted not in in um, in in killing terrorists. Mm-hmm dead, killing 10 members of a family, including seven children. And the, 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 the head of the family was, in fact, working with the Americans. So once again, in my mind, I just couldn't help but think of these different final, these, these different culminating as well as final events coming together in such a powerful way. And I, I simply wish that all of us could stop and just sit with it for just a bit a and, and and try to consider what, what can we learn from this? What is this telling us? Do we have it? I mean, Jesus of Nazareth said, those who have ears, let them hear. Do we have ears to hear this? Right. Uh, so that's what was going on it, for me.
0: Yeah, it's like we choose not to have ears, but you know, I, I, I kind of think you know God gave us ears for a reason, you know, <laughs> I, I would think, and you know, I I have to say, uh, I after the 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 uh, suicide attack at the airport, uh, I, I I also felt furious at what ISIS K had done, and the thought of Knocking them out was indeed attractive. So here was this impulse, quick, reactive, impulsive actions. You know, I'm 70 years old and I found, you know, that's not always the best way to do things. You know, as you say, nobody in ISIS K was killed, but one family with seven children. And the Pentagon later admitted its mistaken judgment and called the killings a horrible tragedy of war. So the rushed Action was clearly done for public relations reasons. Oh, they knocked us out. We're going to knock them out. What about this? How does that affect we American citizens?
1: Well, once again, Bert, I wish we could. I wish we could um, approach all of this in such a way that not only do we do we sit with um, with frankly the grief over all of these terrible consequences of all of this violence, um, the violence experienced by Afghans and Americans. Yes. But I wish that we could, again, sort of take a step back and think about um, how we have been shaped by violence and the role that violence has in, in our lives um, and in our ways of Understanding ourselves, uh, understanding reality, um, um, in our in our decision making, in in um, in our sense of morality, I, I that's what I really would wish that 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 we could do um, because um, I, I think that's that's largely missing and it's it's largely missing from from our from our discourse. I think it's largely missing from political discourse. it's It's largely missing from um, common discourse. Violence is so deeply embedded in our lives and in our ways of thinking and in our ways of self-understanding that it's really quite invisible to us. and uh, And as a result, I think what you're describing is sort of the knee-jerk reaction. We 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 do tend to use it very thoughtlessly and even I would say naively. We're very naive mm. about in terms of understanding of violence and um, in in the work that I've been doing for the last 20 years, um, I, I came to see that I really needed to understand violence much more deeply if I was going to um, if I was going to investigate what I call U.S. war culture. That I would also need to mount a an investigation to more deeply understand what what violence is and how it works, and um, and I can talk more about that if you wish.
0: Oh, well, there's a lot to talk about here for sure. And as you describe it, you know, I think about little kids in elementary school. If if somebody gets hurt or feels offended, he or she oftentimes acts out. And the adults among us say, don't do that. You know, what is that going to do? Sit with it for a minute and think about what the best response is, how not to make it worse. And of course, (laughs) we don't listen to that advice that we give kids. Uh, It's very interesting. I think maybe we used to, I don't know, maybe I'm naive here. Actually, I probably am. And you know, only a very small percentage of Americans have actually seen war, very small percentage. But the rest of us really, you know, we like to make it invisible. And that's a big, I think, as you say, part of the problem. We think we can be held harmless because it's invisible to us. We can be held harmless in world opinion for the the violence that is carried out as policy. In, in that context, you write... Throughout these years, our leaders and citizens alike promoted delusional dreams of violence, parentheses and glory, while minimizing or denying the nature of the violence and its grim impact on everybody touched by it. End of quote. And I have to tell you that word, glory. Uh, I, I saw that word carved in huge letters. At a World War I monument I saw in Chateau Thierry in France, glory in huge letters. Frankly, it disgusted me, and it really left an impression on me. The purpose was to attract young boys to the promise of glory. Talk, please, yeah. about the need to promote delusional dreams of violence and minimize the real nature of it. Why, why is there a need to promote this kind of delusional dream?
1: Right. Well, in order to do that, let, let's just back up a little bit and let's talk a bit about, about, about violence. So um, I, I have drawn on, um, on the work of, of Norwegian sociologist Johan Galtung, um, who defines violence as avoidable assault to human basic needs and to life itself. Um, and 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 Galton goes on to um, to think about violence in this really interesting way. He he uses the image of a triangle um, to address different aspects of violence that are always mutually influencing and impacting one another. So, at one end of the triangle, one point of the triangle, there's direct violence that's the violence that's most visible to us the sort of eruption or outbreak of violence uh-huh. so we might think about all of the events at the end of the Afghanistan war in 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 kabul as 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 an example of direct violence I also think frankly of uh, direct violence as the way to describe you know what happens when let's say a veteran who is who's is struggling with moral anguish and yeah. moral injury commit suicide. That's direct violence. Oh. But, but if we stop there, we're missing the picture because um, and, 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 here, and that's what we generally do in the United States. Um, we, we have a very superficial understanding of violence and where we see it at all,' um, it's, it's really only at the level of direct violence. But as Galt-Hung, um as Galtung um, demonstrates, that direct violence is always sourced and influenced by deeper layers of violence. One of those. So, so a second, a second point of the triangle is structural violence. Mm, mm -hmm. And, um, and that has to do with the, the kinds of violence that is embedded in our social systems and structures. So I look at, in my work, I look at the structural violence of um, the political economy of war, and I in the article I mentioned that the twenty-one trillion dollars that um, was calculated by the National Priorities Project that they say uh, was spent over the last twenty years in um, again what I call an obsessive militarization on the part of the U.S. That's structural violence. Okay, mm-hmm. so. That that's one example of of structural violence. We might also think about the over fifteen hundred U.S. domestic and international military bases huh. as another an, another really leading indicator of of structural violence. Um. So that's the that's the second prong of the violence triangle, and we can never understand the direct violence without without seeing this second point of the triangle. But The issue is that it's much harder to see structural violence. It's built into the system. It's not obvious to us. And in many cases, it's been legitimated and naturalized so that um, it's much harder for us to think about or see. But there's a third point of the triangle still, and that is what Galtung calls cultural violence. And when you talk about the dreams of glory, the delusional dreams of glory, this is what you're getting at. Mm. violence has to do with um, wide scale world views and assumptions and norms and practices that we are born into Um, these are these um, are things that we absorb before we have ever come into critical consciousness they are pre-reflective so um, for instance you know um, Oh, I examine all sorts of these, and especially I examine the ways that civil religion plays a, a really important and, frankly, devastating role in in um, shoring up various forms of, of cultural violence um, in the United States. But these ideas, as you mentioned, that um, war is glorious. Yes. Um, or that um, war is a necessary sacrifice. I especially explore sacrificial um, ways of thinking and sacrificial sa- sacrificial what, metaphors um, that, that dominate the ways that we approach war, but that we tend not to be very conscious of. So, for example, I'll, I'll just give you one example. Um, uh, you mentioned um, a war memorial. There's another one is actually one of the most recent memorials on the National Mall in Washington, D.C., and that's the World War II Memorial. Um, There's one exhibit there with um, this enormous field of stars representing people who, Americans who died in in World War II. There's there's no representation in that memorial, by the way, of people who died um, from other countries. Only, only U.S. deaths are represented in that memorial. That should tell us something about the disparity of our grief. <laughs> um, but on the, in this one part of the exhibit, um, it there are there, there uh, against that field of stars, there is this statement: "Here we pay the price of freedom." Oh. so so that's a sacrificial, that's a sacrificial statement. Um, Freedom, and you, you see it also in, in bumper stickers, the, the common bumper sticker, freedom isn't free. Right. So let's, I, I, I want to invite us to stop and think about these things. What does it mean to say that that freedom is only possible through being purchased and it has to be purchased through blood? That's what's at the heart of those kinds of statements, right? Why do we think that way? And we don't stop to question it. Um, but these kinds of ways of thinking underwrite and provide glorification for the violence of war. What I like to do is to juxtapose those kinds of statements to what I find in the Declaration of Independence,
0: uh-huh, uh-huh.
1: that um, where it is written that life, liberty, or freedom, and the pursuit of happiness are not goods that have to be purchased by blood. But they are gifts of what Jefferson described as a beneficent creator. Mm -hmm. So that's a very, very different um, portrayal of of freedom. In both cases, freedom is a a really important value to be treasured. But the way that one um, achieves it or the way that one experiences it it couldn't be more different in, in the two examples. And again, because all of this is, is a kind of cultural violence that we absorb pre-reflectively, um, it, it largely remains concealed from, co- from the collective consciousness. Mm-hmm. While at the same time, it has a very, very deep shaping impact.
0: There is a lot there for sure, and it just stimulates so much thought and consideration. The, the violence that, you know, it, it, to assume, as you say, that freedom isn't free, you, you're right. That conflicts directly with the Declaration of Independence and, and what, uh, what our founders uh, believed in. They disagreed about a lot of things, but I think they all shared the belief that freedom was something that is our right, right? That is the way we are born. And especially, you know, if another discussion is the, the, you know, economics aspect of uh, freedom that uh, we can't, uh, that people are held down by their poverty and not able to be really free. But now we're entering an age where that doesn't need to be the case anymore. And violence, you know, if people can just stop and think, Boy, that, you know, it doesn't seem like that's too much to ask, but I guess it is too much to ask. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're speaking with uh, Global Religions Department teacher Kelly Denton-Borhag about a parable of all-American violence, accountability, and the war on terror. And, again, I recommend a book that we, she and I, spoke about uh, a while ago, U.S. War Culture, Sacrifice and Salvation, and then and then your soul is gone the moral injury of us war culture and i have seen you know democrats and republicans seem to all buy into this this wonderful notion of american exceptionalism you know and and all these being it's nationalism really you know and and it reminds me once again of the insanity of the first world war that Belief that America is the rightful leader, the indispensable nation, that we are better than all others. And that brings up, you know, the the recognition of non-Americans who died in these wars. One doesn't have to be in the military to buy into this. It seems like the majority of Americans buy into the uh, nationalistic American exceptionalism. In what ways does this belief... This underlying belief feed into the naivete and delusion about the sanctity of violence that we're talking about.
1: Right, um, you know. Well, it, I, 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 I really have been thinking about. First of all, can can I just say a couple of things that um, oh, that, that relate? To comments, Bert. Um, yeah, yeah. One of the reasons I think why um, we don't stop to think you 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 mentioned how difficult how 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 difficult that seems to be for us. Um, <clears throat> I think one of the reasons why we don't stop to think is because these kinds of notions like freedom isn't free mm-hmm. um, or they 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 rouse a great deal of of deep emotion for us these These kinds of notions, i I argue that they are very deeply tied to norms and practices of. Nationalistic self-identity for many Americans, and once we enter the the territory of identity, we, um, we are also in the realm of um, a very deep emotional experience for people. Mm. Um, our Our identity is is something that rouses emotion for us. and when, and, and so once once um, we are emotionally aroused, um, critical thinking can be harder to do, <laughs> right. you know, yes. um, and, and so I think that, that that plays a really important role in, in um, deterring um, more serious, critical thought um, mm. on, on people's parts um, about these issues. Um, so I wanted to say that, but now, now I'm trying to remember exactly where we were and what your question Uh, Just about the notion of American
0: exceptionalism and this naivete and Mm -hmm. how it affects the delusion of the sanctity of violence.
1: Well, so many scholars have written about the long-standing tradition of American exceptionalism. Um, But it, it really seemed to me that, again, at this moment in our history, what was missing from the discourse was An analysis of the way that that long tradition of thinking was also intertwining with a very superficial understanding of violence and and practice of violence on on the part of U.S. Americans. And that that was really a lethal mix um, that we saw the consequences of um, in the last days of the Afghanistan war. so uh, I, I very much appreciated the way that um, Andrew Basevich recently wrote about American exceptionalism. He called it the um, indispensable nation syndrome, <laughs> Right. Um, ironically, on the part of the U.S., this idea that we always know what's better and that we should have the power to make the decisions for everyone. But here's one thing, you know, we're, we're, one, of the, one of the things that you and I are talking about is the fact that there's just a host of internal contradictions that arise the minute that we stop to think more critically about these these um, these these ideas that we hold, and we might stop to think, for instance, about how that long tradition of American exceptionalism is deeply in conflict in conflict with the very basic uh, value that Americans have. With respect to the equality of human beings. If if all human beings are equal, and I don't know if there is any other American value that is more basic and more foundational for our self-understanding of ourselves as as, as a nation than that one. Mm. But if we say that, don't we have to then continue? in in our thinking to understand that American exceptionalism is deeply in conflict with just that value because, um, American exceptionalism sets the U S over and above everybody else uh, in terms of the capacity of its people, its leaders, um, its resources to know what's best. It's a very paternalistic, um, way of thinking, um, and um, I would say it's deeply in conflict with the value of equality.
0: Boy, that, that value of equality is, uh, whew, boy, if you were to ask a lot of the people on the right, a lot of the Trumpists, they would reject that. And yet here they are claiming to be deeply patriotic Americans. They truly believe in, you know, white, Christian, a certain, you know, way of looking at Christianity, which is obviously different from a lot of other ways, that that is, they're supreme, white supremacists. They actually believe that. And they believe that, uh, you know, for, let's face it, Trump was clearly racist, you know, in, in saying, you know, the Chinese uh, flu and, uh, and and building up uh, violence against Asian-looking Americans. Uh, it just, it, it, they're going against our basic, principles and it seems like certain beliefs these delusions this militarism that's been around i think really since uh uh, the uh spanish-american war in 1898 when we felt like we could the the world was ours we could conquer the world we are naturally the rulers of the world we are indispensable uh and I i don't know how we can get back to the to the idea of uh equality that we were supposed to do it. I mean, people uh, revere Martin Luther King. I don't think they really understand a lot of what he was saying. You know, they, they minimize it and they, dare I say, whitewash it. Uh, and he warned that a nation that continues year after year to spend more money on military defense than on programs of social uplift is approaching spiritual doom. And as you say, our culture remained both remarkably naive and blindly arrogant when it came to widespread assumptions about our violent acts in the world that only surged thanks to further militarization of society. And I, my guess is that we have militarized in reaction, in, in direct gut reaction to the criticism of the war in Vietnam and the unfortunate blaming of the soldiers, the people, the boots on the ground people, for our racist, incredible violence in in Vietnam. So now we're swinging back, uh, the pendulum, swinging back way too far the other way. This militarism of society. Uh, Talk, please, more about the way way you think this militarization comes from. Uh, It's certainly not what uh, people like Jesus of Nazareth intended. Talk about the naivete and arrogance and its effects on who we are, please.
1: Sure, thank you. Um Huh. Where 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 to begin? Um,
0: yeah, there's a lot in there. Sorry about
1: that. I tend to do that.
0: I tend to ask big, complex questions.
1: That's It's lovely. And and actually, what we're doing today, Bert, is something that I wish would be happening in so many places, um, among and between people, and in classrooms of all sorts, at the dinner tables mm. across the country, in public in public fora. Um, you know, these are the kinds of conversations that we need to, that we need to be having part of, part of what you were getting at is the fact that the the kinds of, of, of contradictions in our own, in our own identity as Americans, these contradictions go back, I think, to the very beginning of the American experiment, because as we know, um, inequality was um, built into um, all of our systems and every part of West culture. From the very beginning of um, this experiment in democracy, even as we as we aspired and 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 used the words and spoke the language of the value of the equality of all human beings, so I think beginning with um, the reality of these contradictions as an ongoing and extremely deep seated um, part of our of our identity and our history is 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 really important to acknowledge, and simultaneously, we're very uncomfortable with those contradictions. And not only um, not only people in various extremist groups, such as you mentioned earlier, but I would say people across the political spectrum um, have difficulty in terms of um, of really of really acknowledging, much less digging into, and trying to better understand, much less ameliorate these kinds of contradictions so that what we say we value mm-hmm. we are able to better achieve um better realize in in our national life so that's one thing but to 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 um to turn to this issue of the militarization of our society right. this is in, in in both of my books that I address um head on and in the second book, when I talk about the um, the, the structural violence of U.S. war culture, um, I address a, a little bit of the history of this process of militarization and um, scholars um, scholars really, although as you 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 are right that. Um, this too has a very long history, but scholars especially point to the end of World War II, the post-World War II mm-hmm. time, period, as an important moment when that that um, that militarization uh, across the um, across the face of the United States really um, took on speed um, because the U.S. really didn't significantly de-escalate its militarization right. following the end of World War II. And the other thing that happened is that during World War II, you had the um, the increase of technology and the industri- industrialization of war um, that, that really grew as a part of um, what happened during World War II. And in addition to that, World War II was the time in which the the sort of indiscriminate bombing of civilian centers right, right. became part of the policy not only of the United States but other allies as well. Right. So, um, so again, scholars point to this as a really important moment in which that growth took off, and then um, it continued, and um, and there were definitely moments when it was really strongly emphasized and when there were sharp spikes in growth, Um, whether that was during the Reagan era, um, certainly during following 9-11. And and here we are, you know, today uh, with a, a, a Pentagon budget that, again, political economists describe as being equal to or more than the next highest 11 military spenders in the world. Um, but once again, this tends not to be part of the consciousness right. of, of people. And, and so in my work, I really try to get at why, like what are the kinds of concealing influences that hide this from, from people's consciousness. Mm. And, and I, you know, I, I, I believe that the very nature of violence in especially structural and cultural violence, um, that that the, the, the very way that violence works is part of that explanation, in that it is simply much harder for us to see these in- incredibly important aspects of violence, the cultural and the structural forms, and the way that they provide the ground for and the impetus for the eruption of direct violence. Um, so that, that, that's really an important part of the story that, um, again, I, I, I would love to encourage us to pay attention to in this country.
0: Yeah, it would be nice to, to stop and look in a mirror. I think, you know, as pff, theoretically adults, we, we need to do that, you know, and not blame everybody else and not just react it violently. Uh, and yet, here it is in, in our foreign policy and the contradictions, we have to look at those. But we don't. It's uncomfortable to look at those. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive, and we're talking about our war culture, the invisibility of violence and how deeply it is in there. Our guest today is Kelly denton Bohaug, and uh, she's written uh, a book, And Then Your Soul Is Gone, Moral Injury of U.S. War Culture, and we're talking about accountability of of violence. And, and I think it... It's interesting. One of the quotes you have that, that, that needs a little bit of thought, I think is maybe a lot of thought. The unending violence, unending violence of our war culture became a kind of security blanket. What do you
1: mean by that? Yeah, um, well, you, you know, <laughs> yeah, it became a security blanket or, or sort of like money in the bank. And, and I think this has to do, once again, with with the sort of naive view of violence that is held by so many in the United States. We think we tend to think of violence as a simple tool no. that we can pick up and put down. Um, or sometimes I describe it as it's like a it's like a suit of clothing. You put it off, you put it on. And then when you're finished with it, you can just take it off and, and nobody's affected. But but that is not the way that violence works. Um, I, you know in my in my in my own studies of of violence and nonviolence, um there's a there's a, a phrase from Gandhi that just has become engraved in my thinking. He talks about the way that violence brutalizes everyone. It brutalizes human nature. And I think that's such a powerful and and true statement. And again one that is really deserving of of further unpacking. Um, but in the United States, in, in contrast to that insight, um, we we have generally proceeded as though we can use violence and not be affected by it. Mm. And for me, um, this is this is this was this was part of the reason why I really wanted to focus on um, the moral injury of our returning veterans um, and service members, because it seemed to me that. Their moral anguish um, was a clear sign that, that perhaps despite what they had been told, definitely despite the, the dominant um, frames of U.S. war culture, they could not escape being deeply impacted by violence in ways that were incredibly damaging. Um, and in 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 many cases, produced an anguish that is is so is so devastating um, as to as to lead them to to suicide. And mm. I don't know if you if you saw the news just yesterday. I did that, and I'm, I've been trying to look into this a little bit today. Apparently, um, the Pentagon released new figures about the level of suicide. Saying that, just in the last year alone, the 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 numbers of of people committing suicide in the branches of the U.S. military overall increased by fifteen percent just in the last year, hmm. and in various branches, I, I don't remember all of the numbers, but in various branches, those numbers were even much higher still.
0: Well, I hate to say, but I, I think this may sound odd. I, I think that shows. There's a basic decency in people, and that when these military people experience violence, see violence, see terrible things that happen to other people, because of our policy, it hurts. It's very uh, disquieting for, I think, the human soul, which maybe I'm terribly naive. I don't think so. I, I think it's there's a lot of goodness in us, and if that doesn't bother us, boy, there's something Wrong with that and and people do get it, it, it goes against our nature, I think and I, I do find it interesting that those on the on the what used to be far right, I guess is now just average right think that those of us who, who want to look at the nature of violence and look at you know, that violence that's built into America dominating the world and being the uh, uh, absolutely essential uh, leader of the world, there, there's something wrong with us. We're snowflakes. We care too much about our feelings. It's it's a direct reaction. You know, it's so people prefer yes. to go ahead. Go ahead.
1: No, I I think you're right. And and um, you know, one of the one of the dynamics that I've often noticed over the course of my work in these recent years is that very frequently the proponents of violence, um. They will obfuscate matters by um, sort of transferring what's actually happening on the part of the actors of violence to the actors or the proponents of nonviolence. So let, let me let me give you an example, just just exactly what you were saying. Um, I argue that, the proponents of violence are actually very naive in terms of their understanding of violence. Um, And as we've just been talking about, but one of the things that you often hear from, from the proponents of violence is that in fact, it's really naive to think that there's any other way, but violence, that's often an argument, right? Right. But but that's a very sort of black and white way of thinking. And um, Galtung, as, as Galtung emphasizes These black and white patterns of violence, either either violence or, you know, um, what, nothing. These these black and white ways of thinking are themselves a part of cultural violence. And so Galtung's definition is is helpful to return to here because he talks about avoidable violence to human um, necessities of life and to life itself. And and thinking about it in those terms is really helpful. That if we were to ask, um, is this is this violence avoidable? Mm-hmm. Gulf points to certain types of violence in human experience that are obviously unavoidable experiences of violence. Like let's say a tsunami, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's that's unavoidable violence. Yes, but the violence of war is of another category entirely, um, and. And what if we were to, you know, if we were to ask, um, would there be some other way to avoid this? Could there be some other alternative? Or even alternately, would there be some way to simply dial it down? Um, Mm. You know, uh, so we don't have to think in black and white terms. But once again, Mm. Golding says that whenever we... Um, whenever we address conflict, and, and conflict and violence are two different things, by uh, the way, because true. good point. Conflict is is always going to be a reality in human existence as long as humans are living together. Right. <laughs> That's for sure. So we can't avoid conflict, but we can make decisions about how we address conflict. And whenever we're trying to address conflict less violently um then we're on the road toward greater peace building
0: and um, that is that is yeah. not naive i think i think you're right that that it's the uh, purveyors of violence who are really naive but it's so simple and people like simple things it seems like even more and more these days and we're talking about other options to violence and there's that old expression hindsight is 2020 at the time after 911 directly after 911 the world was grieving with us the whole world sympathized with america and as obviously that solidarity was quite brief as you remind us within a few days secretary of defense don rumsfeld was already talking about a global war on terror targeting 60 60 countries uh, what does that say that the does that that the us didn't even look at or consider other avenues of response along aside from violent revenge was there at the time an option other than you know making this global war on terror that's continued for the last 20 years
1: when we when we when we when we go back and revisit that and remember things like those kinds of statements from Rumsfeld doesn't it just have to strike us as as a form of insanity <laughs> You know how how could how could such statements have been made, and and be taken seriously, and yet they were. Um, so and I and I remember I remember those things very distinctly. You no doubt do too. And frankly, I remember at that time, and there were many others of us in the country too who remember. Our sense of of dread and shock and disbelief that such things would be said and taken seriously and 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 applauded by the vast majority of citizens. Um, it, it is almost as though a kind of madness took hold of the country, and and that that madness that madness itself could never have happened. I would say, were it not for the already just outlandish and extreme levels of structure and structural and cultural violence that already characterized us as a society. So it didn't come out of nowhere. Right.
0: It didn't come out of nowhere for sure. And the fact that so many people bought into it, we've seen Over and over and over again, again in World War I, when most people were against us going into the war, there was tremendous, all of a sudden it switched and people, yeah, rah, rah, war, rah, rah, war. It's so simple and I suppose kind of fun because it's so active. It's like a sports game, I suppose, but a lot of people get killed. And what, you know, American policy clearly did not learn from Vietnam that, that you can't you know take over another country and not expect them to fight back but but what's different now is that is that we yeah, I, go ahead
1: mm-hmm. I was just gonna say but you know once again we we have to remember that um, these these the decision the, the the policy decisions that that were made and that have been made are never disconnected from these deeper layers of violence mm. so um you know, the, we, we we have to remember and, and go back and and look at what has taken place um, over what the last now it's 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 coming on to at least eighty years with respect to the militarization of our country um, and the, the 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 levels of of spending that have been dedicated to this to this in enterprise to this what is now an unbelievably vast Um, military, industrial, congressional complex that includes so many other facets of our society. And, And I argue that this is a part of what war culture is, that war culture is the interpenetration of the ethos and the institutions and the practices of war with so many other different supposedly civilian sectors of society. So now we have the interpenetration of of these um, of these elements of of war and and war making that mix in with with our institutions of education and commerce and popular culture um, and religion uh, and sports, as you mentioned, and um, the systems of surveillance and homeland security. Right. And, I mean, the list just doesn't end. Um, so once again, none of I, I guess this is again what I, I I would love to encourage people to to study <laughs> and to think about more deeply. I argue that studying war culture and becoming better versed in its many tentacles and systems of operation is in fact peace building work. Um, because. Because war culture continues to be so invisible to the vast majority of U.S. citizens, and as long as it remains largely invisible, it will continue unheeded.
0: Yeah, it's got to be invisible. And and one thing that that was learned from our war in Vietnam is that, you know, seeing on TV our boys coming back in boxes and the violence that they they keep it invisible. Now, you know, Obama was very careful not to have boots on the ground. So we have these drone wars, and there it keeps it invisible. and It makes it like, oh, it's a clean war. You know, we don't have to dirty our hands with it. And yet, it, it doesn't, as you say, most Americans blithely believe that we could strike in such a fashion without being truly affected by our... Th- by it ourselves what about it's it's hubris to think that we can do this and you know if we don't see it if our boys are not getting killed and and, you know we just use drone strikes and and kill lots and lots of people it's going to keep us strong it does anything but keep us strong and i i gotta jam this in there too we keep losing wars anything that looks like victory has eluded us. You, In that light, you ask, why were Americans so willing to go on with the unremitting violence of those conflicts year after year despite failure after failure? Well, that's your question. What what do you think the reasons are? What are the answers?
1: Yeah. Um,
0: I know, I put a lot in there.
1: No, I find myself, you know, continuing to really, to really ponder that question. Um, part of it, I think, you know, has to do with the very, um, the very placement of war in our sense of national identity. John Dower, among other scholars, has written about this. That, again, I think, since the end of World War II, increasingly. Americans have come more and more to characterize their identity as being shaped around this notion of expectation of hegemonic military power, right. not only in the world, but even increasingly in the cosmos. And that that's what yeah. it means to be an American. Yes. Yeah, Space um, force. And <laughs> it from, it, from Americans, that is their identity. And so, w- but you know, once again, um, even, e- even if you say, with even saying as much, Perhaps has a, a certain shock value to it, because while I think this does tend to be the identity formation and expectation of, of most Americans, it's again at a somewhat of a pre-reflective level. People are accustomed to going to sporting stadiums and you know shouting out the chant USA USA right. That is a, a kind of um, what a, a symptom perhaps of this sort of I, identity formation but what would happen if we were to really stop and ask the question well what what does it really mean to be an american and what are our most fundamental values and what are our aspirations and how do the current realities and and practices including <laughs> including economic practices in in including the practices with respect to how we treat people in our own country yes. as well as people outside of our country, yes. how how do all of those kinds of practices contradict with who we want to say that we are? These are these are the kinds of these are the kinds of practices of reflection. I would say that um, I hope I hope maybe more people are beginning to turn to. Yes, uh, because you're right that. It, it became all too easy, especially in the post-9-11 period, for the the Titan corporate weapons producers mm-hmm. in the United States to to seize more and more of the resources pie, and they were not held to account. Um, our political mm-hmm. and military really were not held to account yeah. in terms of what was actually happening and the years of, of failure after failure. I mean, I just recently went back and was rereading this, this very striking letter that William Arkin wrote, who is a, an investigative reporter on U.S. militarism and systems of surveillance. And he wrote uh, this remarkable letter in which he talked about all of this and commented on how how striking it is that the citizens of the United States did not hold their leaders to a more stringent accounting and how after all these years of these post 9-11 wars, as he put it, there was not one country in the Middle East that is safer than when we began. That's incredibly striking, isn't it?
0: It is. And I think... Maybe, maybe, I'm always an optimist somehow, although it gets hard sometimes, <laughs> that maybe we're at a point now after this Afghanistan debacle and the Iraq debacle, I I like to think that maybe people are starting to think, what is this getting us? Do we have to dominate the world? Are we the indispensable? Maybe there's another way of doing it. Maybe we can look at national security. What is really... What is our national security? Has it been helped or, or hurt by this incredible reliance on violence? We could talk another couple hours or so, but we've reached the end here. <laughs> uh, the, the, the book I would recommend is And Then Your Soul Is Gone, Moral Injury and U.S. War Culture. Kelly denton Borhog, thanks so much for being with us. And uh, uh, do, do you feel any sense of optimism at all these days? <laughs>
1: But I like to think about the difference between optimism and hope. Ah. So I know I don't know how optimistic I am, but i I really refuse to give up hope that human beings, human beings, have unbelievable inner resources, as you were saying earlier, Bert. For um, given the chance and and given the encouragement for self reflection, yeah, and for uh, and for introspection, <laughs> yes, and and so I'm I'm hopeful that maybe more people are are turning to the need for this, and then will play an active role in helping us to turn the ship around so. in a different direction.
0: Boy, that's music to my ears Thank you so much for being with us once again A lot to think about And uh, what a concept, self-reflection Thank you so much, Kelly Denton Borhag And uh, for being with us and keeping democracy alive Thank you so
1: much for having me